Greetings. This is Gary Rogowski with Splinters, our bi-weekly podcast on topics various. Today's topic, slow down. I'm in a hurry. Slow down. I started looking through my book to see if uh, there were any mentions of, of this topic. And, you know, I type in uh, slow down and go search for it and Man, it's all over the place. I'm finding references for it in chapter after chapter after chapter. So I get the feeling that the author thought it might be important for the author to pay attention to. How many times have I had to admonish myself to slow down? It, it took me so long to understand this concept, though, that if you're in a hurry, if you slow down, if you slow down the pace, you'll get there faster. Because otherwise, you're, you're rushing through stuff. You make mistakes, then you got to go back and fix. It's always, it's always counterproductive to be in a hurry. Uh, it seems to be. It's when I make my worst mistakes. And, and isn't it fascinating when you think about it? Think about athletes. Older ball players, the game slows down for them. They've lost a step, but they become smarter because they watch the game. They see it unfold in front of them. Quarterbacks see the field more easily. Basketball players know where to make the pass or where to step in front of a pass being made to steal it. I am reminded, I don't know if you've seen this movie, The Unforgiven with Clint Eastwood, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago. Great Western. And in this one scene, uh, he's in a saloon and he's going to kill five or six guys in the saloon. And he's the only one moving slow. Everyone else is going nuts, shooting at everything that blinks or might blink or might be a target. Uh, and he's just sitting there turning and popping one guy after another. He's the only one moving slow. Everyone else is in such a hurry that they all get killed. Yeah, slow down. Here's a story from Handmade about Jake the Mechanic, what I learned from him. We would get these VW bugs in the shop, and uh, this was in Michigan, and Rust always wins. Rust always wins in Michigan, and I was always getting stumped by things. Working on these Volkswagens, uh, I'd get out an air chisel and try and get these nuts and bolts to budge. And usually I'd, I'd have trouble. Now, an air chisel is a pneumatic tool powered by compressed air and so noisy that the only way you can work with one is right up close to it, immersed in its racket. Your noise is manageable because you feel like you're getting something important done. Your neighbor, on the other hand, or one of my neighbors, on the other hand, uh, is a cretin with no imagination. Get leverage is what I wanted to scream at him. The air chisel is a shriek when your neighbor is using it, a crime against your eardrums, a cacophony of havoc, and this neighbor should be caged or chained up or incapacitated somehow after an hour of hearing them bang away with a chisel. It was an affront to your senses, this tool. And we all worked with no earplugs in these tin box Volkswagen that resonated like marching drums. Well, my best friend and savior when things went south for me at the shop was Jake. He was the kind of mechanic who didn't say much. Lanky calmness to the guy with a simple face, straight black hair parted so it fell flat across his head. He sized things up before he spoke. When I would finally recognize defeat with a stuck bolt or heat exchanger or muffler, I'd walk over to Jake and ask for his help. Now I would sidle over to Jake's bay and patiently wait for him to come up from underneath the car, from inside his hood. I had to ask him again for help, which he always generously gave, and we were on a clock for each job, so this clearly was an imposition. 
and I would explain the problem to him, which he understood immediately. In short, the problem was that I was a knucklehead. He would stop what he was doing, climb out of the Volkswagen he was working on, wipe his greasy hands, and come on over to help. And I'd show him the rusted problem, and Jake would take my air chisel and put its tip on the offending bolt and just stare at it. Then he'd move the chisel to the other side of the bolt and stare at that view for a while, just looking at it, sizing things up. No noise, no action, just looking. And he would do this for a time with me wondering why he wasn't making noise. Why wasn't he just diving in like I do? But he'd pick a spot and then blast away at it until the part broke loose. He was a genius. Calm. He was never in a hurry. He was always successful. He would plan his leverage, the mayhem of the air chisel, and then perform the surgery in such a measured and violent way that it always succeeded. And it wasn't just rusty nuts and bolts that Jake could master. It seemed that once he put his mind to it, he could always figure out a way to solve any mechanical issue. It was the sort of brain power I stood back in awe from. He would stare at the problem until he knew where to put the lever, how to loosen the pin, where to take up the slack. No one gave him much credit for his intuition or generosity. I think mostly because he was no self-promoter. He never pointed at himself proclaiming his greatness. I learned a lot watching Jake work. I learned about patience and planning, although I admit it took many years for these concepts to sink in for me at the bench. I learned that it's better not to thunder against a problem, look at it critically, then unravel it. But did I mention that it took many years for this to sink in? Patience came slowly to me. I made a cut. I checked the fit. A little more wood needs to come off. It needs concentration for this work and a great patience. I described joinery, the art of putting pieces together without nails or screws, an act of accuracy plus patience. And eventually I developed that needed quality. I learned how to sneak up on a fit. I learned how slowing down made things go faster. I had to stop, like Jake, to size up a problem that I faced. The problem's not going anywhere, so might as well take your time and be patient, learn when to slow down, and then when I decide how to solve it, be forceful and on the mark. Here's another story about the need for slowing down. This is uh, in a chapter called Learning Curve. and talks about an accident. Those of you who have come and taken a class from me, whenever I get over near the table saw or the joiner, I... I always remind everyone about uh, this incident. Everyone, of course, everyone believes that accidents occur elsewhere to other people, stupid people, but not me. I'm not stupid. I think I'll always be alert and on my toes. Everyone believes that they have, since they've done things in a certain way for so long, then they must be safe. I know what I'm doing. I've been doing this for years. I've never been cut before. There are no guarantees. Maybe you've just been lucky all this time. <laughs> But everyone, everyone who works at the bench will have an accident in the shop. It's so interesting in a lecture on um, a particular machine to, to say this to students, to see their reaction. When you have your accident, what will it be? And I let that sink in because it's going to happen. There's no doubt of that. Everyone has an accident in the shop. And it can happen anytime we get in a hurry, forget our safe habits, do something stupid. The question is, how bad will your accident be? Will it be blunt force trauma? We hope so. Or will blood be shed? Well, that day I was in a hurry, of course, and my joiner knives were dull. And the joiner is a powered planer with these spinning knives that rotate at you. And my old six-inch had a great big opening between the in-feed table and the out-feed table. They're a beast. They really are a beast. I heard of a shop teacher once who would take a broom handle and turn on the joiner and feed it into uh, straight down into the cutter head to demonstrate his power. Imagine that impressed his students quite a bit. 
Anyway, I was building a small walnut box that day, running one of its short ends. Had the joints all cut, but I was running one short end through the joiner to clean it up before gluing, and I was in a hurry. And the knives, they were dull. The wood was bouncing a little as I fed it through, and I, so I had to push down a little bit harder on it to counteract the chatter of these dull knives. But I had nothing between me and the knives except a thin piece of walnut. And I pushed down too much on the front end of the board as I fed it into the knives, and it dipped into the cutter head, and the walnut kicked out of my hands across the shop. And my left hand was left tickling the ivory, so to speak. My middle finger got nicked before I yanked it away. It didn't hurt. It doesn't hurt. It felt more like a punch to my finger. Then it started to bleed. That's when you know it's bad, when you don't feel any pain and you're bleeding. When you have your accident, you'll immediately go into shock. Your body will shut down so that if you can stand the sight of your own blood, you'll figure out how to bind yourself up and go get help if that's what's needed. And that's, that's what I did. I got my finger above the level of my heart, applied a pressure bandage to the wound, and watched it turn red. With my blood, my stupid blood, because that's what everyone says next. That was stupid. Anyone who has an accident in the shop knows that it's usually preventable. It is usually your fault. It is something you did that you could have prevented by slowing down or, or by understanding how the machine can bite you and understanding how to prevent that scenario. I didn't know I needed push sticks, and now I got push sticks all over the place. There's four of them by my joiner now. But an accident is a huge opportunity to learn something important. Does it force you to slow down? Remember when my friend Michael got his, uh, his finger caught? You got to go get bandaged up or stitched or whatever. You can't work for a while. You have to slow down. And that's an opportunity. It's a real opportunity to learn something important to understand what just happened and why it happened and how never to repeat those same actions again. When you get bit, you're going to have to endure the healing time and the inconvenience of a bandage and splint, as in my case. But you also have to endure the fact of your own stupidity, that you hurt yourself. It's shameful. Why would I do such a thing to myself? This is the unspoken question. Why would I allow myself to be hurt by being careless or sloppy? Difficult question to answer. I was lucky in a way with this first accident. I reacted quickly and pulled my finger out fast and just had it bandaged for a few months. I lost the feeling in the fingertip for a while, but it came back. Fingertip was unscarred. I was lucky. Many are not. Come by the shop, see my push sticks, make patterns. I'm happy if you do it. I also have kept that piece of stained walnut close by. It's in the shop. It's got my blood on it still. This is that splint close by my bench. I pull them out every once in a while to remind myself to slow down. One of the things that's interesting to note when I'm in the shop working with my students is the speed with which I work now. And most of that has come from practice. This instance of slowing down comes from a chapter called 100 Shoes a Day, and it's about my bandsaw. All kinds of shapes started to appear in my work. The curves of the legs of my tea table appeared. The shape of my stool legs came from the bandsaw. I could now make tenon cuts with ease or take a wide board and set up a tall auxiliary fence on the saw. And with a fresh blade, cut through the thickness of that board and make two wide but thinner boards that I could glue up into a bookmatched panel. I also learned that I could make money with this saw. We had moved to a new house and shop outside of Portland, Jane and I, and down the road and across the creek from us was a lumberyard. I got friendly with the guy running the yard. After some time, he hired me to cut wheel chocks for someone in the railroad. Now, these are chunks of wood shaped round to fit under the wheels of a rail car to keep it from moving. And he asked me if I wanted to make 200 wooden chocks 
cutting them to a specific circumference from four by six timbers. I had my new bandsaw, so I jumped on the job. I'd haul these eight-foot chunks of four-by-six fur back to my shop, cut them up my radial arm saw to length, and then take them to the bandsaw. And I made curve cuts over and over and over and over again, one after another, staying close to a line on the pattern I laid out and drew out the line. I had one try to get these cuts right, too. I wasn't going to go back and fix anything. It was one try, get the cut right. I must have done a thousand of these chocks. And the job did several things for me that were far more important than putting money in my pocket. It taught me how to saw and how to saw accurately to a line, but it also taught me how to be patient, to listen to the motor work, listen to the blade cut, know when it was getting dull or when it made a sound that said, the blade might break soon, and you hear it just a half second before it happens. I learned to listen to the sound of the motor when it complained in a cut, when the backside of the blade rubbed too much against the wood. It taught me to be patient. Slow down, I told myself again. This helped my sawing technique in so many ways, this practice, this repetition, this patience I had to learn. This next section is from Chapter 12, Discipline and Practice. Not everyone wants to practice. Not everyone has the discipline necessary for practice. If you are skilled or want to learn something, it is the only thing that allows you to get better and to develop your skills. And most people don't want to do it. They just want to be good right away. They want to skip the work part and just be great. But it takes discipline to become skilled. My father taught me discipline. A Catholic high school education reinforced that. I was taught that if I do a job, you do it well. And to those two stern teachers, I owe a debt of gratitude. I learned to work hard. And that's probably the most valuable thing I ever learned at school. It wasn't the biology or the literary symbolism or the theories that were critical. It was the discipline that was the most important thing, forcing myself to work when I didn't feel like it, getting to the bench to get a job done when I wanted to play, learning to focus when I wanted to dream, and practicing denial of some pleasures in order to get something back in return. It's a paradox, and the repayment can feel slow in coming. It is there over time if you have the discipline. Discipline is what I use to become skilled. Now, the dominant cultural paradigm that we are sold now of living faster, buying more, or bigger, faster... It's not for me. It's one way to live, and there is another. To slow down, to try to do your best work, to make your efforts count. There is no shortcut to quality. It takes effort. The hard work is part of the reward. If you dedicate your life to mastering your skill, and it will take that long, if you decide on this journey, then once it is inside of you, no one but your last breath can take it away from you. To fall in love with your work is the key. It has never worked then. Always strive to elevate your craft and to make this work better. This last section on slowing down comes from a chapter entitled The Problem at the Bench. It was a short stopover in Reykjavik, Iceland some years ago, and I strolled around the small town, headed down a hill towards the bay, and I walked past a small, white, clabbered building. It wasn't old, wasn't particularly attractive, held some apartments inside. And as I was heading down the hill, I heard this music coming from upstairs. Three instruments, a violin, a flute, and a cello were playing in a second-floor apartment. And they were murdering a piece by Bach, I think. I think the murder was not in question. I just wasn't sure if it was Bach or Haydn or someone else being killed that day. I stopped dead in my tracks to listen to them. They played with such a confident airing. They stumbled on. They never stopped to correct themselves. They just pushed forward, threw their mistakes to the end. I applauded. I had to. 
I'm not sure they noticed me, but what luck for me to witness their attempt that morning. What fine luck. There is only one way to the proficiency of the master, and this trio knew it, practice. Keep practicing until the notes have the precision they require. Keep practicing until the work is transformed, until the work transforms you, until study becomes mastery. No one anoints you with mastery. One isn't born with it. You're blessed with talent. But you become a master by repetition. You cannot buy mastery with a tool, with another book, or with a week of class, or study with a gifted teacher. Those cannot make you great. Practice does. As Robert Persick says in Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, quote, assembly of Japanese bicycle require great peace of mind. He goes on to discuss the importance of this state. The bicycle, the machine... The furniture has no stake in being right or wrong. There is no ethical code that lives inside a tool. It is the builder that has to bring the good into the work. And it's not about building the stuff. It's an attitude about being at the bench. The task is learning to accept this, learning to be quiet there, and learning to slow down. My goal at the bench is to drown out the noise of the world, to forget its insanity, its dangerous, its increasing inanities, and strangle, if only for a time, the louder voices inside my head telling me that I can't do this work. If I don't have serenity when I begin to build, I will pull my problems into the piece itself. At the bench, the problem is always me. It is never the tools, but how I handle them. It is not the work that is hard. It is managing my emotions that is the task. Working through the boredom, handling the mistakes, managing my patience, learning from my errors, slowing down. This is the challenge. This has been Gary Rogowski for Splinters, the Northwest Woodworking Studio podcast. Slow down. That's all I can tell you. There's a student in class who uh, who mentioned that uh, in his rock climbing class that he took, right? they said the same thing. You want to get up that that pitch? Slow down. Figure it out. Use your use your wits, not your muscle. Please check out our website, NorthwestWoodworking.com. Buy me a coffee on coffee.com and ask a question if you got one. Happy to answer it. Please come by the studio April 11th. I'm going to start pitching this. Uh, we're going to have a, a mastery open house. And uh, I'm inviting all the students that are in Portland, local, to come back and bring a piece. And we'll have some refreshments and do some demos and talk about the mastery program. So if you're around April 11th, come by the studio. It's going to be fun. Thanks very much for listening. I appreciate it. Take care of yourselves. Bye-bye.